since I've had the privilege and the opportunity to stand here in this beautiful sanctuary and to share the Word of God. In fact, uh, last Sunday when I was here, a lady who was sitting beside me asked me, are you a stranger to these parts? <laughs> Reminded me of uh, those disciples asking the Lord, are you the only one who does not know what's been going on in Jerusalem? Uh, yes, I have had the privilege of being a member of uh, Stonehill when it was still Westerly, and uh, thank you uh, for this welcome. I did uh, tell Pastor Tracy that I needed a proper welcome. I did not ask for a brass band, but thank you anyway for the uh, welcome. Uh, here we are <laughs> on a Sunday morning, bright sunshine on a spring day with a beautiful sanctuary here, and yet we talk about violence in our schools. Just yesterday I was sitting at home and there were tornado warnings reminding us that 26 people had lost their lives in Mississippi. Floods in unlikely places in California, people trapped by snow in places that had not seen snow for maybe a century. Wars, rumors of wars, immigrants just trying to leave violence, drowning in the Mediterranean. We should not have to be reminded of our common humanity by a two-year-old lying face down on a beach. And in the midst of all of this chaos, perhaps we are reminded of the words of Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, Toto, I have a feeling we are not in Kansas anymore. And in that epic of sorts, which was written in the early 1900s, uh, this young girl finds herself in a strange and beautiful place as a result of a hurricane. And as she lands in this beautiful place, she is reminded that uh, evil is still the dominant factor that must be addressed even in a beautiful place like the land of Oz. And yes, there are people who uh, accompany her on this journey. A uh, person who is a scarecrow and is looking for his brains. A tin man who is looking for a heart. And a lion who's looking for courage. And all of this ensnared in the crux of evil. Truly, I think we ought to ask and say we're not in Kansas anymore. In April 8, 1966, the cover page of Time magazine said, Is God dead? April 3, 2017, just 55 years later, headline on the cover said, Is Truth Dead? Uh, we seem to be caught up in an ethos when we seem to have lost our bearings. And so as we sit here pondering these things of what is happening around us, Nietzsche was the one, that philosopher who propounded this notion that God is dead. And after we take out God from the equation, we ought not to be surprised at the things that we are seeing around us. 
because Nietzsche, uh, whose father, by the way, was a pastor, was a Lutheran pastor in Germany, uh, went on to tell us what would happen when uh, we proclaimed this grand idea that God is dead and that we had no more need for him. He said, we will become a people that are hedonistic, uh, that we will be a people that uh, continue to look at pleasure, that we will practice erotomania, that that will be the, the, the crux of what we will be following and being enticed by, uh, that we will lose meaning in our culture, that we will not have any touchstones of objectivity, uh, that we will be looking for that ubermensch, that superman who we would think would come and begin to uh, embody all that which uh, is meaningful to get out of this. And then he went on to say that, of course, after having lost our sense of meaning and purpose, after being a people who are hedonistic, who believe that pleasure is the only ultimate goal to which we see, he says, we ought not to be surprised that we will go into a period of madness. And as if to prove the point, he spent the last 11 years of his life in a mental asylum. I serve on a university and 60% of our students are looking at some form of counseling. They're depressed, they're anxious, and they're suicidal. David French, writing in the New York Times, said, when we look at our youngsters going through, and by the way, the 60% is a low number when you look at some of our more prestigious colleges and universities that number that is of the freshman students going through counseling is upwards of 70 and 80%. David French writing in the New York Times said perhaps that the things that we are seeing among our students ought not to be surprising because these are emblematic of what we are seeing in our homes. That perhaps it is the fact that our parents, the parents in which these students are growing up are increasingly the carriers of this anxiety and this depression and the sense of hopelessness and the sense of having been lost. And so, when Nietzsche told us that we would be a hedonistic people, looking at our own selves as the ultimate touchstone of all meaning, we ought not to be surprised that one of the hit songs of our day is called The Anti-Hero, sung by Taylor Swift. Yes, I do listen to Taylor Swift every now and then. Because the artists of our age speak to us in language that is perhaps unarticulated by many of us. And here are the lyrics. I have this thing where I get older but just never wiser. Midnights become my afternoons. When my depression works the graveyard shift, all of the people I've ghosted stand there in the room. I should not be left to my own devices. They come with prices and vices. I end up in crisis. I wake up screaming from dreaming. One day I'll watch as you're leaving because you get tired of my scheming. It's me. I'm the problem, it's me. At tea time, everybody agrees. I'll stare directly at the sun, but never in the mirror. It must be exhausting, always rooting for the anti-hero. Sometimes I feel like everybody is a sexy baby and I'm just a monster on the hill, too big to hang out, slowly lurching forward, your favorite city, 
pierced through the heart but never killed. Do you hear my covert narcissism? I disguise as altruism? Like some kind of congressman. I wake up screaming from dreaming. One day I'll watch as you're leaving and, and life will lose all its meaning. It's me. Hi. I'm the problem. It's me. At tea time, everybody agrees. I stare directly at the sun, but never in the mirror. It must be exhausting, always rooting for the anti-hero. It's me. It's me. I'm the problem. In the midst of all of this, you ask, what is Palm Sunday doing on a Sunday like this? <laughs> well, a couple of things that Mark and the Gospel writers want us to understand in this that we call the triumphal entry. The first thing that we must take away from the details of this reading from the New Testament, and hopefully we will read this and you will have opportunity to read it in Mark chapter 11. It reads as follows. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and just as you enter, you'll find a coal tied there which no one has ever ridden, untie it, bring it to me. If anyone asks you why doing this, tell them the Lord needs it and we'll send it back here shortly. They went, found a colt outside in the street, tied at the doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, why are you doing this, untying this colt? And they answered as Jesus had told them, so the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clock clothes over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem, went to the temple, looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went to Bethany with the twelve. So when we look at this and we talk about the triumphal entry, you'll notice that this is what is known as the beginning of the passion narrative. It begins that period in time which will end in the crucifixion and we ask ourselves whatever could be triumphant about an entry which is going to end in an execution. Well, we have to begin to start unpacking what the gospel writers want us to learn from this particular event. And first and foremost, we have to learn and understand that God is the one who orders everything in the finitest detail. And here you'll notice that uh, uh, as the event takes place, both Matthew and Mark and Luke and even John are careful to give us the characteristics of the detail, uh, especially as it is fulfilled from Scripture. All the way back from Genesis chapter 49, which was read for you, and all the way to Zechariah chapter 9, which is again quoted by um, Matthew in his gospel, and on, we notice that uh, later on, it is quoted from other passages of scripture, noticing that the Davidic king has arrived, and that there ought to be no question, even a blind man, Bartimaeus, sitting at the gates of Jerusalem, will have sight enough to understand that the man who comes, although he is the prophet from Nazareth, is the son of David. 
So we ought not to ever be surprised that the gospel writers make this claim that our Lord himself claims that he is the king of Israel coming back to his own. And he is coming to the capital of his kingdom like his great ancestor David did when he established Jerusalem as his capital. But we ought not to forget that that was not the ultimate destiny and the destination of our Lord when he was entering Jerusalem. It was the temple, and we will unpack that in a little while, but let me begin to uh, elucidate a couple of the other things that are in the gospel narratives that our God, by telling us all the passages of Scripture, going all the way back to Genesis, wants us to understand that nothing is left to chance in the domain and the sovereign control of our God. We may get flustered, we may get confused, we may think that things are out of control and that God is up there and doesn't care, but what the narrator, the gospel writers want us to know and what our Lord wants us to understand is that every detail is under the control of a sovereign and divine God who even understands that two donkeys are required. If you look at the gospel of Matthew, yes, the mother donkey and the colt, which has never been written, are both taken. And our Lord rides on this colt, which has never been ridden before. The mother is usually there because a colt that has never been uh, ridden tends to get a little uh, frantic, and the mother sort of calms it down, and so our Lord rides. And when you look at the fact that uh, the uh, disciples and the crowd are beginning to throw their cloaks on the ground, you'll notice that that is a... Uh, a reference to Jehu, when Jehu was crowned uh, the king, when uh, the prophet went and crowned him as king, his disciples and his followers took their cloaks off and threw it on the ground. So those who were there from Israel surrounding the hillside in this holy event understood the nuances of what was going on. There was no confusion that the king was coming to his capital. And so on it goes. And when the children cry out, it's a cry from Psalm 118, all right? This great uh, psalm of ascents, which was sung by the uh, pilgrims as they came from all parts of the country and of the world to celebrate Passover. And as they came down and up the hill, they sang these great songs of liberation and redemption to welcome their Messiah. And then as you look at the colt and this uh, little donkey, uh, you'll notice that too was foretold. And when they go to the village and they ask the owner to uh, untie this, the Lord tells them exactly what would happen and exactly how it would take place. And so our Lord parses all of this. And we ask, why would somebody let that donkey go? It is because when the sovereign claims by eminent domain something, subjects let it go. And so here was a case of the sovereign asking for the, the use of an animal for the purposes of his triumphal entry. It was not unusual uh, for Caesar and for the kings to, uh, to take, if you will, from the population these things in the context of their campaigns. And so here it was. And ah, what about these little children and the population going around with palm leaves, as we saw? You'll notice that uh, it's only John that tells us that palms were involved. The Gospel of Matthew uh, tells us that they were uh, leaves, and Mark tells us that they were fawns and kind of things that were cut from the field. And what is that all about, Barry? This time it had become a kind of part of the expectation of the messianic presence that the temple uh, would uh, begin to start celebrating alongside the whole notion of the festival of booths. Because when 
the temple was dedicated by Solomon. It was in the seventh month, the month when the Jewish people celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. And it is not without intent that last week when it was preached from Amos, that David's broken booth would be restored. It is the same word that is used, David's broken tabernacle would be restored. So oh, there it is, this notion that when these booths were built, it was through branch fawns and palms and leaves and kind of things that were built for this lean-to. And so there was this juxtaposition, although booths were celebrated at uh, the uh, great uh, feast of the great Day of Atonement, Rosh Hashanah, there was this now notion that when Messiah came and put all things together again, Ah, now we will celebrate that great and last of the festivals, seven festivals, the last of the festivals, the celebration of booths, that God had ultimately come and dwelt in the midst of his people, but not in a palace like Solomon had built, but in a lean-to. All the pieces, judiciously, in detail, put together to show us that this was no accident. And that what was being proclaimed was the king coming to take his rightful place, but a king of a different kind. As Pastor Jim said, coming humbly on a donkey, not on a steed like Caesar did when he rode or when his generals rode in as conquering people. Coming. Matthew says that he came humbly, meekly, same thing that is used in the uh, Sermon on the Mount when he says that the meek shall inherit the earth. Those who have the power but choose not to exercise it but in humility come at the service of the other. He comes humbly. But as I told you, he comes from Mount of Olives. And what was that about? If you read through the Old Testament scripture, you'll notice that Amos talks about this and Zechariah talks about that the Mount of Olives would be the place from which the glory of the Lord that's that Ezekiel saw departing would come again. That it was on the Mount of Olives that God would begin his great and active redemptive acts. And so it is not without purpose and intention that our Lord begins his journey from Bethany on the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's journey, and comes down and up the hill to tell us that all of these great prophecies of Scripture would be fulfilled. And truly, as we see, the ultimate destination was the temple because the glory of the Lord was returning as Ezekiel saw to his temple again. But when our Lord returns to the temple, as you'll notice, those are integrated along with this event of the day of the triumphal entry. Our Lord does not come at it as if he's just a meek and mild and lowly person. He goes out and does some, some dramatic things. And after he goes through and cleanses the temple, he utters these two particular phrases, one from, from Isaiah and one from Jeremiah. And he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, all ethne. And then the second one from Jeremiah, but you have made it into a den 
of thieves. And by the way, that word that is used there, a den of thieves, is not the normal um, notion of thieves. It's the same word that was used about the two others who were crucified with our Lord. You know, uh, when they were crucified alongside of our Lord, Rome never uh, crucified robbers. These were uh, what they were called lestes, people who had created some type of an insurrection. And so it was not without intent that the temple was always the crucible when these uh, riotous events took place because it was a time of the great festivals to gin up, if you will, nationalist fervor and go against the Romans. And that's why the Romans always had a, uh, their soldiers sitting atop the Ant Antonin fortress looking in to just make sure that the peace was kept. And so when our Lord comes into the temple and provides these two key passages from the Old Testament, notice that Isaiah 56 has a very strange introduction, if you will. It says, the Lord has come into his house because it is the house of prayer for all ethnic. And the introduction of that is the introduction of the welcoming of the stranger, the foreigner, and holy of holies. Sagrablu, as they say, the eunuch, who is to be excluded from the temple of the God, now finds himself as a pillar in the house of God. Read 56, Isaiah. Ah, what seditious language is this? That when Caesar is sitting on the throne and very shortly after the scribes and the Pharisees will come to him and say, is it okay to pay tribute to Caesar? And by the way, April 15th is coming. It's not about paying taxes, by the way. It's something very different. Please understand that when our Lord is asked this question, it is a trap to find out if he is going to be seditious because if he was seditious, he could be handed over to Rome. And ah, there it is. We've got rid of this guy who's creating so much of turmoil. So it was an attempt to get him to say something against Caesar. And of course, our Lord says, well, show me a coin. Show me the denarii, a day's wages. And the two instances when our Lord is asked to pay taxes, one to the temple and one to Caesar, notice that he didn't even have that to pay his taxes. It does not mean you don't get to pay your taxes, just saying that the poverty level of our Lord was quite extreme. So you ask somebody, can you give me a denarii, a day's wages? Somebody gives it to him and says, whose, whose, whose imprint is this? Whose image is this? And whose inscription? And then he gives this answer when they say it's Caesar. He says, pay Caesar back in his own coin. Pay Caesar back in his own coin. And if you think he's worth worship, if you think he's worth being called Soter, Savior, if you think he's being worth called Pontiff Max, the great person who needs to be saved, the Son of God, if you, if you think he's worth all this, give it to him. If there was ever any seditious language, that was it. You see, when you call God Lord, you are saying Caesar is not Lord. And so when our Lord cleanses the temple and he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all ethne. And when he's talking about this notion that you have made it into a den of iniquity, a den of thieves, in Jeremiah, if you read the introduction to that, what are the people saying? You know, the people are saying, you know, we have the temple, we have the temple, we have the temple. And oh, you know what's in the temple? Jesus, God himself is in the temple. And as long as we have the temple, nothing bad's going to happen to us. Our Lord goes on to say, is that not one of these stones will soon be standing upon another. When his disciples say, look at this beautiful thing. And by the way, you guys have done a great job paying off $2 million. God bless you all, all right? It's not about destroying any of these beautiful things, okay? It's something very different. It's this notion 
that the church is the body of Christ. If we ever forget what the triumphal entry is all about, that it is not about bricks and mortar, it is about flesh and blood, and the crucible in which the Lord chooses to dwell. The crucible of flesh and blood, where you and I become the means by which the Holy Spirit is exhibited to the world. That is the introduction of Jeremiah. And so, how do we put all these pieces together? For one thing, let's remember that God is sovereign. That He has inaugurated His kingdom. That there is a new order because the king has come into his capital and he has taken control over his temple. God's promises are certain. And God orchestrates events sovereignly. What then the takeaway? First, live seditiously. Seditious is a bad word these days. But that's what our God is requiring of us. He says, when you decide to bow the knee to Caesar, when you believe that your national identity trumps every other identity, you're on the wrong track. Hebrews chapter 11, right there in the midst of that great section on faith, talking about Abraham, right in the middle of describing what Abraham, the great champion of faith, he says, we are reminded that we are aliens and strangers moving to a city whose foundations are laid not by man, but by God. Aliens and strangers. How strange. When I first came to this country, I came off the plane, and I went through and said, citizens, aliens. Doctor said, they don't look like an alien. I went to citizens. I was caught by the immigration. said, no, you're an alien. <laughs> it's interesting that humans are called aliens, aren't they? Living seditiously. What does that mean? It means that we are citizens of a different kingdom. It means that we have a different form of governance. It means that we have laws that transcend the laws of Caesar. It does not mean that you can't be red, blue, green, white, whatever. No. You can be Republican and Democrat and progressive and conservative or whatever. But whatever you are, it never stops you from being the prophet that says this is simply wrong. 
We must call out evil for you see what our Lord was telling Israel is that you miss the boat. It's not that Rome is your oppressor because you see you will only be giving up one oppressor for another if you think that political freedom is what it is all about. Even Dorothy recognized that evil had to be conquered in the land of Oz. And what our Lord saying the real problem is unless you conquer evil, there will be no respite from your oppressions. And the cross talks about the redemption from evil. And we as citizens of this kingdom are the ones that have been given the eyesight like blind Bartimaeus to see that the king has come, the kingdom is established, and we are called to live in a new ethos that calls out evil wherever it is found, whether it is, you know, blue, red, whatever, whatever. We're never excused. And God forbid if it should be found in the church. We are called even then. Like our Lord says, my house is called a house of prayer for all nations, all ethnies. Look around. Do you see the ethne here? Or do we keep saying, oh, the temple, the temple, the temple, and nothing can happen to us as long as we continue to be those that align ourselves with the right denomination? Live seditiously. Secondly, worship. Inclusively. Worship. Inclusively. I've never heard a more seditious statement than what Paul wrote to Galatians 3.28. There is now in Christ neither Jew nor Gentile, Greek nor free, slave or free, and horror of horrors, male or female. I was entering into a a counseling session, and the person who was teaching us about uh, talking about counseling says, You know that there are 16 sexual dystopias. Today, in our campuses, we talk about sexual fluidity. You see, we've got to begin to start looking at worship inclusively. It's not that we don't know how to stand up for the right things that are things in scripture that are categorically true. But it does not mean that we dispense with compassion and mercy because God teaches that we love even those who are our worst enemies. Worship inclusively. When every category in the then known world was up there, our Lord says, and Paul says, break them down break them down. My house shall be called the house of prayer for all ethnicity. All kinds of people. And if the eunuch who is to be excluded from the house of the temple of the Lord can find his place as a pillar in the temple, why are we not inclusive? Why are we not able to say we do not agree with this? But by gosh, you will find a place of healing here because there is no other place for healing. Ah, university, we admit students of all kinds. We don't say you have to be a Christian to come. It's a Christian university. We make no bones about it. We are absolutely clear in terms of the fundamentals on which we stand. So we ask people to tell us, you know, what is your faith journey? Where have you been? And we tell them categorically that we don't believe really binary genders. We believe marriage 
between one man, one woman, all of those types of things that we adhere to as our fundamental principles of faith as disclosed to us by the divine word of God. No questions, no apologies about this. But we find there are many who do come. What we call LGBTQ, whatever alphabets you want to add to that. And when we find out later on that they are that, we ask them, why did your church come to a Christian school? He says, you know, when we go to a secular institution, we're bullied, we're picked on. But when we come here, we find us loved and accepted. And that's an opportunity for us to share the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Worship inclusively, and let me conclude with this love, obediently. You see, when you go to the 13th chapter of the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians, he tells you what love is, and it's not an exhaustive list. It's like Paul often does. It's a compendium of things that he thinks are appropriate for us to think about. There could be all other things that you may want to put, but he says, love obediently. You see, for very many of us, love is a feeling. And I beg for you to understand that love is just not a feeling. It may be part of a feeling because we are holistic in that sense, but it must be something that is worked out in the nuances of what it means to express love. The God of the whole universe, who can never forget, says, I've chosen to forget your sins, your shortcomings. I've hidden them. And then when Paul reminds us that love keeps no record of wrongdoings, how often do we pull up our list of hurt? Love, obediently. And God asks us that that road of obedience is a long road, a road of consistency, a road that is not in today and out tomorrow. It bespeaks of the very nature and character of our God. A love that breaks down barriers. A love that chooses to love even as our Lord did when we were yet sinners. Our Lord was accused of this. He eats and drinks with publicans and sinners and tax collectors. And one of the most pungent sections of Scripture is found in Matthew 23 when he takes on the scribes and the Pharisees. The harshest language is reserved for those who, knowing better, still choose to live hypocritically. Woe to you, hypocrites. And on and on he goes. Seven woes, scribes, Pharisees. Why? Of all people, you should know better. Harlots, tax collectors, they come in. They recognize the love of God. Why don't you? And why don't you live it? Triumphal entry, it's counterintuitive. It's a king who comes in humility and says, my kingdom is a kingdom very different. But yet, it's the fulfillment of all God's plans and purposes in every detail and in every nuance. And when God promises, He delivers. It is not for us to think that we have control of all of the levers that begin to effectuate change. 
hardly. And some of this will lead through the road of suffering as our Lord showed. But you see, in the moments when there are questions in our culture, we must always answer. As the prophets of old did. When Elijah was asked, is there not a God in Israel when the forces of evil were arrayed? Elijah had to ask his people, is there not a God in Israel? And when the forces were attacking the kingdom of Judah and north, Jeremiah was asked, what do we do? And he said, is there no balm in Gilead? Let us never cease to proclaim that in our midst, that there is a God, humble God, a God who's king, but a God who loves unconditionally. And yes, there is in our midst and to what God has given to us, the Holy Spirit, the balm of Gilead. I close with this. When Peter, James, and John were hauled before the Sanhedrin, the authority structure of his day, they were asked, why are you going about preaching this? It says, we dare not preach anything else. For this is the truth. And then they conversed with one another. And they said, are not these unlettered fishermen? You see, it doesn't take great erudition, it doesn't create great wisdom, it doesn't create great anything. It just needs this one thing. You see, we lose something in the translation because when these guys were talking about these three or four guys, they said, you know, are not these illiterate fishermen. The word that was used was, are not these idiotoi? Are not these idiotoi? From where we get the word idiots. You see, the world will have no particular reason to appreciate, but it is the Word of God. It is the living Word of God. It is the living God that we worship. Is there not a God in Israel? Is there not balm in Gilead? This then is the message that we preach, that we teach, that we are unashamed of. God bless you.